this morning. If you are new, welcome to a really, really crazy conversation we're having with the book of Revelation. And we are in the fifth week of this, so there's been just a whole bunch that has already come before. And quick reminder, this book, uh, Paige just read uh, chapter 5, this book would have made sense to the original audience. This book, the imagery, uh, all the things that we're like, what? Would have made sense to them. And it's calling these, this group of churches in Asia Minor to fidelity in Jesus, to be faithful to Jesus. And it's really hard to understand because it's apocalyptic literature. Not apocalyptic like we're used to, apocalyptic movies, but very vivid, symbolic imagery that they would have understood. But this book would have been a source of hope for them and, and not fear. For many of us, we grew up with a very futuristic understanding of Revelation. Like if you grew up in, in a church um, you probably have heard um, just a lot around the futuristic parts of the book, um, or they've been, been interpreted as futuristic. Now, I was talking to Reuben this week, and he's like, way to go doing a, book, uh, a study in the book of Revelation, and then this whole thing happens with Israel. And uh, social media feed, and it's just been very much about, oh, we're, we're in the end times. Guys, we've been in the end times since Jesus ascended. And so what I don't want us to do is to fall back into a futuristic rut when we're reading this book. Because I actually think when we do that, it takes the focus of what God's trying to do for us and in us. And we'll get to that here in a second. Last week, we were in chapter 4, which is this incredible throne scene. Um, and we had a whole bunch of conversation around the history behind Julius Caesar and all the emperors leading up to Domitian, which we believe was the emperor around the time that this letter was written. So last week, there was a lot of historical references. This week, we are going to trace a theme that is central to this letter through the letter. And it's got a huge amount of Old Testament imagery to it. Now, so the two major things that contribute to this letter, over 400 Old Testament imagery, pieces of imagery, and a huge amount of Roman imperial propaganda emperor worship language. And if you're not familiar with either of those two streams, what happens is, is you begin to wonder, like, is this some sort of something that gets decoded in history? Is this something that's going to come? And we are more or less asking the question, what would the original audience have heard? And when we answer it that way, I think it has a lot more for us. So Revelation chapter 5, we're actually going to concentrate on the first six verses because next week we're going to hit a lot of the last part of Revelation 5, and we're going to talk a lot about the emperor Domitian. So if you hate history and, and boredom, you might want to miss next week. That's all I'm going to say. This week, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. A scroll that had writing on both sides meant it had everything to say. And a scroll with seven seals was pretty intense because in the ancient Near East, a scroll only had one seal. It only needed one seal. But this one had seven seals. What did we learn about the number seven? 
It's important, yes. It's complete, it's perfect, it's all that you needed. So seven seals were like seven strings tied around this scroll with seven wax seals imprinted on it. And a seal, anybody who got a scroll with a seal on it, um, meant that that's the person who could open it, that's the person who could interpret it, that's the person it was addressed to. Okay? So God is holding a scroll. This is the imagery of John. God is holding a scroll. And who is worthy to open the scroll? And then it says in verse 2, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And the answer we're about to hear is no one. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. Now, we're going to get into some of that language next week as well. But the idea behind it was no matter how powerful the emperor is, even he can't open this scroll. Okay? And it was a kind of a huge dig, really, at the emperor next week. Verse 4, I wept, this is John speaking, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now notice, John is going to hear something and then he's going to see something. He's going to hear about something that's totally different than what he's going to see. Okay, And this is really important for us. Um, we live in a day and age where we see things, we hear with our eyes. Our whole culture is built on hearing with our eyes. Whether you have Instagram or TikTok or all the things, we hear through our eyes. And, and this is a different world. And it's very important for us to understand that John hears about something completely different than he sees. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll in the seven seals. And so the angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll? And, and then John weeps because there is no one who is able to do it. And then the 24 elders say, see the, the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. And so John hears about the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. And then he looks, and what does he see? Verse 6, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Now, we will spend more time on all of this, but I want to call your attention to the juxtaposition of I heard... A lion, I heard about a lion, and then I saw a lamb. Okay, this is rich, symbolic stuff. And it has a lot to do with the rest of the book. And not just any lamb, he didn't see just any lamb, he saw a lamb who was slain. Okay, now, ladies and gentlemen, here's the thing. Only taken five weeks, but this is the central image of the whole book, and it informs, it informs everything in the whole book. And now we're going to get nerdy. Last week we did Roman history. This week we're going to do Old Testament. Next week we're going to do Roman history. <laughs> and we're going to talk about the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, and what that all means, okay? So really quickly, the Lion of the tribe of Judah comes from Genesis 49. Like I said, John's just bringing all this imagery forward for the people. And it comes out of Genesis 49, and, and this is Jacob, and Jacob is blessing his, his sons on his deathbed. And he's got a bunch of sons, and he's blessing all of them, and he gets to Judah and he says this, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. 
Your father's sons will bow down to you. So he's basically saying you will be this preeminent tribe of Judah. You will be this preeminent tribe. And then he says, you are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter is a very royal image. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Okay, so this is very royal language. Um, If you were a Jewish person, you would hear those words and think, power and ruling and leading and strength. That's what you would hear. The Lion of Judah brought all that stuff up. And it was a very Jewish phrase that meant Messiah. It was a very Jewish phrase that meant conquering and victory and strength and rulership. Okay? And it was also very militaristic. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Conquering image. And, and, and just to be the head of the tribes, right? Because they so you get the, the, um, the Lion of Judah, and then you have this Root of David. Okay? What is this meant? What is meant by this? Israel, at this point, this is going to come out of Isaiah. Israel, at the time of Isaiah was like a tree that was cut off at the stump, like a, you just see a stump in the forest. That's what the image of Israel was. They used to be this big, beautiful tree, but because of their um, waywardness, they were cut off at the stump. But Isaiah 11 says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Okay. What happens when a shoot comes out of a stump? Yeah. It's still alive. There's a, little, there's a little bit of life left. You've heard of the term a remnant? There's a little bit of life coming up, like the tree will grow again, and it's this green shoot that could mean that the stump was still alive, that the Messiah would still to come. Isaiah 11.10, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. So there's more kind of conquest, victory, trample your enemy language. It's very Jewish, very yearning, very, very hopeful language. So when John hears... He hears about a lion from the tribe of Judah and a shoot from the stump of David. Okay? And the image is conquering power over revenge, crushing enemies, victory, banners, and battle. That's what he hears. He hears that the Messiah has conquered, and when he looks... He sees a lamb who was slain. Okay? Those are very different images. And this is the image we get from Exodus 12, from an event called the Passover. And it's the final straw in this power play between God and Pharaoh and there's plagues, and there's a liberation that is to come, and there's, um, we're, we're, we're going to get into some of the language here. I'm going to have some of the scripture up here, but Moses is preparing the people for their exodus, for their liberation, and part of the process is some plagues, um, things that are just really kind of hard for us to wrap our heads around, and the final piece is a Passover lamb, a lamb who would be slain. And this lamb was to be for every household, right? And you were not supposed to, um, you were supposed to gather as a family and, and the lamb would be slain and you would use the blood on the doorposts 
And it was to be a sign, and the avenger, the avenging angel would over, would fly over, would, would pass over your home. Uh, and that's where the term pass over comes from. And it's hard for us to imagine all of this, especially as Western American Christians, is we've never been, I mean, the oppression, the, the, all the things that the people were feeling in their bodies as they lived for hundreds of years in oppression. And the image of a slain lamb as one, as, as a kind of an image of rescue. So just to recap, who can open the scroll? No one on heaven or on earth or under the earth. John weeps. And then he heard the great news that the conquering king, the lion of Judah, the root of David, it's all happening. Here it comes. And then he looks and sees a Passover lamb that's been sacrificed. Can you imagine how jarring that image would be? It's just a jarring image. It's just a, a, a like I'm thinking this, and I, and it's, but it's this. But the idea that the Lamb has conquered, think about this in Roman culture, is just a ridiculous image. It's just a ridiculous image. It's the most ridiculous image you could point to in the first century, a lamb, a slain lamb overtaking and conquering. In their context, a Messiah who dies for his enemies is laughable. Uh, Rome's enemies, what happened to Rome's enemies? They were conquered, they were killed, they were eradicated, they were enslaved. The Messiah of the world conquers by dying for his enemies. The imagery here is just incredible. The conquering Messiah manifests his conquering by dying for his enemies rather than killing them. And so this next part is so important. If you catch nothing else... There are some violent images to come in the book of Revelation. Very violent images. And we're going to look at those violent images through this lens. The trouble is, is that many people don't read the whole book in one swath, right? We, we, we kind of look at chapters and verses. There were no chapters and verses. It was one piece of literature. And people are tempted to think that for some reason Jesus changes his strategy midway through. Like, <laughs> this is the image of a, a suffering slain lamb, and then later we see an image of Jesus on a horse slaughtering everyone. And I've literally heard Revelation 19 preached by very famous TV preachers that Jesus is literally going to do that. And nothing can be further from the truth. It is a horrible, misinformed vision of what Jesus is about. The defining image of the book of Revelation is a conquering king who conquers through self-sacrifice. Period. Doesn't change his mind. Doesn't finally get fed up with the pagans. <laughs> but he conquers through self-sacrifice. And spoiler alert, <laughs> the people of Jesus are to conquer in the same way. Through self-sacrifice. Now we're going to look at this idea of the lion and the lamb, and, and we're going to see it through the book of Revelation, but we're going to go really quick back to the seven churches. Because there were, there were more than seven churches, we just need to understand that the number seven is important for John and his writing, it means completeness. So what, what I think John is doing here is the complete scope of churches. 
in Asia Minor and maybe beyond. Hint, hint. The book is for all times because it is about all time. So, each letter to these seven churches, remember we just looked one, at one as kind of like a something to grab onto, but each letter ends with an invitation to conquer and to overcome. Right? Verse 7, chapter 2, to the one who is victorious... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Verse 11, to the one who is victorious will not be hurt by the second death. We'll talk about the second death uh, down the road here. Uh, to the one who is victorious, verse 17, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. Verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Verse 5 of chapter 3, to the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. Never blot out any of the name of the person in the book of life, and I will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Verse 12, to the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple. This is beautiful. I would encourage you to go read all of this. Uh, verse 21, chapter three, chapter 3, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Now remember, when you read the, the seven churches, some of them have compromised. And some are, have stayed faithful to some degree or another. And there's this kind of pendulum of the two, right? Um, some have compromised. Some have let, in a sense, the, they've become like everything around them. And some have stayed faithful. But to all the churches, this is so important, all the followers of Jesus are invited to conquer, are invited to overcome. And that's the Greek word, Nikeo, which is where we get the word Nike, right? Anybody wearing some Nikes? Or as the Brits call it, Nikes, right, Rob? Right? You guys are proud of that, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I want us to imagine, just for a second, before we wrap things up, before we get to where we're going, I want you to imagine you are a tiny house church. And you're in, the, you're in a city of maybe 200,000 people, just bustling city of 200,000 people. And you meet mostly in secret. And you're saying to those people, you're inviting them to conquer. You're inviting them to overcome. It's just a crazy image. How are you going to conquer the, the weight of the Roman military, the worship of the emperor, the worship of all these gods, and there's nothing you could do. Like, you had to live such a different life to avoid all of that. How are you going to comp? How is our little house church of 15, 20, 40 people going to conquer? The same way Jesus does. Now, we're going to account, we're going to actually encounter a bunch of imagery that we've not yet talked about, and we're not going to be able to talk about all of it yet. But I want you to stay focused on the conquering victorious language. You with me? Revelation 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the, of the, altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Um, so who would these people be? What would we call them? Martyrs. Yeah, witnesses, right? Um, they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until the judge, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? So, 50 times in the Bible is the term how long. It is the ache, the, the song of so many people. It is the ache of so many people today. How long, right? Psalm 40, how long? 
Verse 11, then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been, which is just a weird answer we're not going to get into right now. We will meet them again in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 9 goes like this. After this, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And what we're about to read, and we're not going to go through the whole thing, is a census that is basically straight out of the book of Numbers. Um, It's kind of a tribe by tribe census, uh, and it's all a play on the number 12, which has a lot to do with the tribe's And John hears about an army, and then he sees 144,000, which is what? 12 times 12, yeah. After this, which is um, another image for completeness and bigness. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, and that's how we know that's kind of symbolic of, of a huge, it's not a literal number, the idea is something that is no one It's a number that no one can count. It's a big number. It is a multitude. We'll get into numbers again next week. Um, That no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. The people of the churches were told that if they overcame and conquered, they would be wearing what? white robes. The other part of this that is amazing, God provides, God saves is the image here because the palm branches, we don't have time to get into this. I love nerding out to the palm branches. You think I'm weird, that's fine. Um, But basically the people of Israel, they would celebrate at the feast of Sukkot. They would celebrate the harvest. They would celebrate God's provision and they would snip off palm branches and they would all hundreds of thousands of them wave them in the air at the same time. And you know what that sound sounds like? Rain. That God had provided rain for the harvest, that God had provided everything they need to sustain life. And so the palm branch became a symbolic, uh, a symbol of God's providence and God's saving ability to the people of Israel, so much so that it became minted on coins that uh, archaeologists have found about the time of the Maccabees. And the Maccabees was, (laughs) I told you we weren't going to do history, but we are. Between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew is about a 400-year period called the silent period where the people of God felt like God went silent. And during that time, they were oppressed and heavy-handed. There was a group of people, over and over again, different people came in and conquered them. But one of them in particular was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes decided it would be really fun to um, hurt the people of Israel by uh, sacrificing a pig on their altar, which became the abomination that causes desolation. And there was a war, and the Jewish people revolted under a guy named Judah Maccabees. And they celebrated Judah Maccabees on on a coin for like the six years that they were free. On one side of the coin was the picture of Judah Maccabees. On the other side of the coin was a palm branch. This is why when Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey and the people are waving palm branches, they are shouting Hosanna. The word Hosanna means save us, rescue us, save now. And Jesus weeps because they don't understand why and how he's going to accomplish this. They think, Lion of Judah, 
root of David, what they are going to get is a slain lamb. Revelation 7, 13 says, Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, there are the, they are, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have overcome. They have conquered. We meet an army. What is true of the army? They have suffered. They have shouted, how long? Who is the conquering king? A slain lamb. Now we get to chapter 12. Trust me, we're going to get somewhere with this. Hang with me. Where the army and their king engage in a war against the dragon and his army, and we're going to get to the dragon in a little while, early November. <laughs> this takes a bit. <laughs> But this is a celebratory hymn that is sung after the army conquers. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, and this is the dragon we'll get into, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So we meet a king, and we meet an army who conquer through sacrifice. So I want to deal with something here that's really important, like I shared with you before, this violent imagery we see in Revelation chapter 19. And I want to deal with it now before we get there. Because it does feel a bit like God changed his mind. I saw heaven standing open. There before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is the only time in the book that we meet Jesus not as a lamb. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. This is an Old Testament image. On his head are many crowns. Old Testament image. He has his name written on him that no one knows but himself. Old Testament image. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were followed, following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Who were the white, the white robes? Remember that part? Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. This is Psalm 2. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Where did we hear that? Lion of Judah. Remember that part? He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has his name written, this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that sounds a little different than the slain lamb stuff. Let's just be honest, right? A sword coming out of his mouth. Um, the the winepress part is actually Isaiah 63, where the prophet Isaiah is talking just in just huge justice language about God stomping on his enemies and the blood of his enemies would be on his robe. Now, this is hard stuff for us. I'm proud of you. Hang in there. We're almost there. The idea famously preached that Jesus is settling some scores is wrong. And I want to be really, really clear on this. In chapter 12, we just read in 13, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Whose blood is that? His own. In Isaiah 63, it's dipped in the enemy of God's, the blood of God's enemies. And these are 
These are people, the prophet Isaiah, these are people who are seeing the injustice all around them and crying out for how long. But what we've been trained so far to think about the blood on Jesus' robe is it's his own. And John takes this Old Testament image and meaning and applies it to Jesus. He is still conquering the way the lamb conquers. And the most violent image in the book is subverted by the image of a slain lamb. And inside their heads and the image that they're seeing is the lion of Judah and the slain lamb. And we've been led to believe in Christian circles that violence in the name of Jesus is justified. And I just want to say that is a misreading of the text. And we have a modern American culture that loves violence. And we have a modern American culture that loves retribution. And um, I have to be honest, the last eight days in my heart have been a repeat of the feeling that I had after 9-11. When, hopefully, you haven't seen the images coming from Israel. Um, I had a real, profound, deep feelings of wanting people to die this week. I'm just going to be really honest (laughs) with you. I'm like, drone them. I mean, that's, I'm just honestly telling you how I felt. Probably much like the prophet Isaiah. God's going to do something with them. He's going to press their blood out in a wine press. So I have three implications for us today. And no, we're not done talking about this book, and many of you will probably, you might be disagreeing with me, and that's fine. You can disagree with me. We're just having a chat and a conversation. The point is about our fidelity to Jesus, okay? We don't live in the exact same specific pressures that the early church in Revelation did. We don't. Um... But there's a, a group of, of churches in, addressed in this book that are in crisis because they're facing persecution. And there's a group of people in the church um, that is being addressed that are in crisis because they weren't. And I have to personally wonder which one I am. And if I'm really honest, I think I am tempted more towards accommodation to the culture around me than being a dissident to it. And the question facing us is, what does faithfulness to Jesus look like today? So here are three implications for us today, and I want to tell you right now that these are going to be really difficult, and we're not going to like it. (laughs) Welcome to church. The first one is this, unless it acts like Jesus, it's not Christian. Deep breath. Let's apply Let's apply the word Christian only to those things that are willing to die for their enemies. Let's do that. I know you're probably wondering what I mean by that. But if it does not engage in enemy love, it's not like Jesus. And that is true of churches, And that is true of movements, and that is true of politics, and that is true of economics, and other things, on and on and on. Unless it acts like Jesus, it is not Christian. Second thing is this, and this is going to ruffle some feathers. It's more important to be faithful than to be effective. 
Jesus is, this letter to the churches is for them to stay faithful. He doesn't one place ask them to do amazing big things for God. He asks them to just be faithful. And not one place in Scripture are we instructed to do great things for God. And I am... (laughs) I've been in the biz long enough. And I've gone to a lot of conferences and I've read a lot of books. And there's a general sense, especially in the West of whipping people into a frenzy about doing great things for God. And I've met many people who have kind of fallen into this, usually under the age of 30, that feel this immense pressure to do great things for God. But I think what this letter is saying is be faithful. To make it your ambition, 1 Peter, who Peter wrote the book, uh, the letter, uh, 1 Peter, for a group of people who are trying to learn how to be faithful. And he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to work with your hands, to love your neighbor to be faithful to the commitments you have made, to ruthlessly cling to community and see what happens. Like, what if we did a whole bunch of very faithful, allegiant, small things as a community? Like, think about the impact of that. Like, I've known a lot of people, I see a lot of people doing great things for God and then become a scandal or lose their faith. Like, like so many voices in our world are like, the church has to transform culture. No, we don't. No. I mean, you could read some real nerdy stuff like this guy Leslie Newbegin, and he talks about culture and faith, and you can get all into the weeds on that stuff. But Scripture's really clear. You know what? Transform your own mind. Transform your own heart. Let the transformation of God sink into you. This is like our posture as a church. Like we want to be the kind of church that one of our postures is to help each other become more like Jesus, more, more faithful to Jesus. Um, means opening up the places in our lives that are allegiant to other things or fearful of things and, and, and allowing the presence of the Holy Spirit to do uh, transforming work in us. Like, what if we just spent all of our time, Romans 12 was written to a church whose house was dirty. Enough of that. Last one is this. Nothing is so urgent in our world that we must get off our cross to accomplish it. Okay, this is is language. Take up your cross and follow. This is Jesus' language, a very Jesus way of talking about people who are willing to relinquish their rights and their privilege and their social standing in the world in order to be a part of what Jesus is doing. We have been discipled to think that there are such things of great magnitude happening in the world that it's okay to skip the love your enemies part that we get to set that part aside that we don't have to bless those who curse, that we just get to, there's things that are so big that we get to just set that aside and go, no, I don't have to do that. As if these things are so important that it needs me to not act like Jesus in order to accomplish what Jesus wants to accomplish. How insane is that? And we have all bought this, and it's demonic. Never once has Jesus needed evil to accomplish his will. Not once. 
And the American church has bought into the ends justifies the means theology at times. And it's, I want to just be really clear, it's anti-Christ. And some of you are like, but isn't the antichrist revealed in Revelation? No, it's never mentioned in Revelation. The word antichrist is never mentioned in the book of Revelation. You can try reading for it. Prove me wrong. What antichrist is, is living in a way that is what? Anti-slain lamb. Anti-self-sacrifice. If you think that Jesus' agenda invites you to cease being loving and humble and instead seeking power over others, you've missed Jesus. You've missed Jesus. And I'm tempted to think that what's going to fix the world is, this is me, you may be like me, I'm tempted to think that what's going to fix the world is a strong military Strong economy, right? And the right political party in power. And I'm just preparing us for 24. And I know I'm not alone on that. And what revelation is going to provoke us, it's going to provoke us in in the instability of all of that and how those things become idols. So uh, I'm, I'm going to go on a rant on evangelism. I'm not going to right now, but <laughs> never mind, I am. So <laughs> I, th- I grew up with this idea that evangelism was the more, most important thing that I should be doing with my life. And, and it's, it's a very important thing, obviously. And so I'm going to get emails. Um, that the most important thing I could do is to save souls. And it didn't matter. Here's the thing that was hard. It didn't matter how I did it. As long as people were converted. And as long as people can have, in a sense, prayed the prayer, right? So if you had to guilt them, coerce them, scare them, manipulate them, bait and switch them, nag them, it didn't matter as long as they prayed the prayer. Now, I'm, I'm being very hyperbolic here, but even though all throughout the New Testament, it was merely an invitation, like a beautiful invitation to something more beautiful and hopeful than everything happening around them. Like it was okay for me to not follow Jesus in order to make people converts of Jesus by guilting them, coercing them, scaring them. And, and some of you are probably like, that had nothing to do with this. And I just want to close by saying this. The reason we want to make revelation sometimes about the tribulation and about signs of the future is because it becomes about an object of fascination rather than calling out the ways that we accommodate to the patterns of empire. So that wrestle for us. There's a lot happening in us, more happening in you than sometimes you have the ability to notice. But I want you to begin to notice. Some of you can actually look back on some of the things I've actually said today and you noticed something. I didn't like that. That hurts. That makes me mad. That makes me sad. And I want you to pay attention to that. Because I think that might be where God wants to rescue, restore, and challenge you into the way of following Jesus. Okay? So unless it acts like Jesus, it's not Christian. It's more important to be faithful than to be effective, and nothing is so urgent in our world that we must get off our cross to accomplish it.
Let me pray. God, we are uh, wrestling with this imagery of a conquering, powerful ruler, king, messiah. And if we're honest, that's what we want. But you showed up as a sacrificial, self-sacrificing, humble, meek, lowly lamb who died to break the power of death. The death that we experience in our lives, in our souls, in our bodies, in our in our future. You broke it. And you broke it because you love us. God, you didn't, you didn't love us just because of what Jesus did. You've always loved us. You've always longed for us. You've always chased after us. And your way to rescue us became through sacrifice. And you are beckoning all of us because of your love for us to approach our world with small, tiny bits of love and sacrifice every day, all us for people who are for us and people for who are against us that we might become a community of the lamb we might become the ones who overcome that we might bear witness to your self-sacrifice for us to a world of power and domination and retribution And this is a hard task. And we need each other for this. We pray these things in your name. Amen.